Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Elul Learning Series. This is, you know, Sniff Sniff, sadly, part four uh, of a four-part series for us to take a look at some of the uh, core sources on ideas that are not unfamiliar to us. I don't think there's anything we've studied so far that was like, wow, I didn't know that about Judaism, or wow, I didn't know that about what repentance meant. But it, but when people think about the the Ur text, the, the central node of what Judaism has to say in an organized fashion about Shuva, it's the Rambam. And as we, going back to the first session, before the Rambam, it wasn't organized. There's no Masechet Shuva. There's no tractate in the Talmud that talks about Shuva. It's one of those topics that is spread out throughout rabbinic literature, and is clearly central to our identity as human beings. And the Rambam masterfully brought it all together into a treatise. And to study the full treatise would take a long time. So the hardest part for me in preparing this shiur was to figure out, knowing that we were going to go slow because there's a group of people that likes to study text slowly, what, not what we were going to study, but what we were not going to study. Um, and in the end, I think we'll only have looked at four or five halachot in the Rambam and some of the commentaries on it and some of the back stories the, uh, from the Talmud. Um, and maybe uh, we'll pick up this trope next year, uh, looking at different material from the text. Because um, this is, again, part four of four. So without further ado, let me share my screen. Let me do two things. Let me give you the text sheet. It's a different link than last time, uh, just because I had to I had to adapt it. So I'll put the text, I'll put the... Um, I'll put the link into the chat and then I'll also share my screen. Hold on. Okay. So here it goes into the chat. Where are you, chat? Okay, okay that should be the uh, Google Doc. And then I'll, again, I'll also share my screen for those who would rather just look at, you know, one thing on the screen, not two, not two things. Okay. Um, we're now into chapter two of Hilcho Shuvat. We didn't complete chapter one but I wanted to get to uh, some different material here. Some of this is going to be also very familiar. There's nothing earth shatteringly new, but how the Rambam goes about teaching this material, I think is interesting, particularly the examples that he gives. Okay. So this is uh, the second chapter of Hilchot the third halacha. Kol hamidvadeh badvarim, going back to things in the first chapter. Anyone who does this vidui, this um, verbal confession, once again, we, we focus on the fact that the, the verb lehit vadot midvade is hit pael. It's reflexive. So anyone who confesses to oneself, like it's a, it's a reflexive verb. It's hard to actually render it well in English, but we know what it means. Anyone who does this, we do it with words, which whose precision was spoken about in the previous chapter. Velo gamar belibo la azom. Wait, sorry, I knew that was not where I wanted to start. Go back. Go back. Uh, we're going back a text. Uh, the first halacha of, um, of, of uh, the second chapter, because this is where he introduces this word mura. So scratch what I said before. Ezohi tshuva gmura. What is tshuva gmura? Complete, um, total repentance. He had referenced tshuva gmura above. Now he's defining it. Ze shabaliado davar, shavarbo. A situation comes to you literally to your hand, but mean it presents itself to you, the very type of situation in which you failed the last time. It's got to be possible for you. Meaning it's not just that the situation comes up, um, but, but because the circumstances have changed, it's not possible to sin again. The situation comes up and it would be possible for you to repeat that exact transgression. Great word here. Ufeirash. Uh, if those of you who are going to hear my Rosh Hashanah sermon, this verb will come up in my Rosh Hashanah sermon. Uferash, peireshin, and you pull back. Peireshin is a is a verb. It means a lot of things. Perush, commentary, it means to split apart. Right? A perush is something that is that is a, a, a piece of meaning that is split apart from the standard text. Here it means to um, choose not to, to um, stop yourself. I'll say this in the Russian sermon, but you'll get a little heads up. You might know the English name Pharisees from the, it's actually the English from the Greek, which was the way that uh, the caste that became the rabbinic class in ancient Israel were, were um, known. Uh, Pharisees is an English Greekification of Prushim. It's the same uh, consonants, 
Pharisees, Perushim, Peirash, and then Shinnersin. And why they're called Prushim? Because they were very good at holding back. They were considered good at doing self-restraint. They were a, a pious group. So you're in the situation and you pull back. Velo asa mipnei hachuva. And you don't do it, but he asks for interesting words. And it has to be that the reason you're not doing it is because you've done shuva. Not because you're afraid that you'll get caught this time or you're even, a, it's under hard to know if he means yira here, if, you, if fear of God, which would probably be connected to tshuva, but it's not out of, out of terror that you're not doing it. And not because you lack the physical strength to do it. You have to be in the situation that you had been in before, be able to do it, choose not to do it, and in your mind has to be, why am I doing it? Because I did shuva and I promised not to do it. He gives a very interesting example. And I'm going to ask you after the example why you think this is the example. Kate Saad, for instance, let's say you were intimate with a woman in a sinful way, right? Um, and this could mean any number of the, of the infractions that are listed in, in, part, in, in Vayikra and enumerated by the rabbis, right? Some kind of a sexual in, uh, inappropriate behavior. After some time, all of a sudden, you have Yichud with her. Those of you who know bits about the Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox world, Yichud is a very significant concept. Yichud literally means togetherness, but Yichud means uh, int, uh, aloneness such that intimacy could take place. We have a vestige of this in the modern wedding ceremony. I do it every single wedding that I do, even though you know, most every people that I marry have had some intimacy before, right? And you know that's the world we're living in. After the chuppah, they br- they're brought to a private room. They go into the room. The witnesses ensure that the room, the room has no one else in it. They stand outside the door for 18 minutes. That's called yichud because it's the, the, the space where they are alone and intimacy could transpire. It probably doesn't at the modern wedding. Um, I remember the, uh, the first date that I ever went on with the woman who's now my wife, Javi. We ended up, we saw a movie in midtown Manhattan and we had coffee or drinks at um, the Marriott Marquis Hotel in Manhattan, which has like a very slowly revolving, um, the whole floor revolves, so, or actually a part of the floor. So you're sitting and you're talking, and then you look up five minutes later in different in your different part of the um, uh, of the room. And the next table over was a couple clearly on a a shidach date. How do I know? A very from couple, just by the way they were interacting, the way they were not touching. And it's very common that shidach dates, the orthodox ultra orthodox world, take place like in hotel lobby restaurants or airports, believe it or not, pre-security, where you can, there's enough going on that you can have some privacy, but you're not yichud. There's no yichud because you can't be intimate there. So we were, we were with a couple uh, who was clearly not having yichud, but trying to get to know each other for the first time. Okay, so what's the situation here? Zman v'nitya you have the opportunity to do yichud with her, v'hu omeid ba'vatoba, and you still love her, right? Whatever the reason is you can't be with her, you can't be with her, the heart is a powerful muscle. You love her, right? Love is love, as it were. And you still have the strength, the virility to do whatever it is that you're um, desiring to do. Interesting. In the same state, place, locale that you had done it in. I don't know why the Rambab adds that. We can, I'll ask you your opinion on it in a second. right? Because why should it matter if, if you're with the woman that you had transgressed with before and you still love her and you have the physical co-op to do it and you choose not to do it, does it matter if it was in Detroit this time rather than Pittsburgh? According to Rambam, for the Chuvat Bigmura, all the circumstances have to be as identical as possible. Ufarash, and even in that situation, you held back, Velo Avar, and you didn't do it. Basically, wow. Ze Bal Mura. This is one who we would call um, Baal here means owner, but it really means the, the one who could be described as having done full tshuva. Okay, let's pause here. Tell me, what do you think of that passage? And why do you, there, there are many sins that the Rambam could have chosen. Why do you think the Rambam chooses this one to articulate the fullness of tshuva? Denise? I could think of three components. One is um, just the the intensity of wanting to do that. Right. The second thing is um, 
that it's not a bad thing, right? It's not like, um, it's not like stealing or something like that, you know, where you could say, okay, the person has some kind of intellectual growth or whatever that's causing them not to do this thing again. It, it really can only come from concerns of tshuva. And um, connected to that, is because it's like the easiest thing in the world to rationalize. Nobody would know. And you there's love and, you know, like the only reason to hold back is for the tshuva purpose. Interesting. Um, I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit, but I don't know that I'm right in my pushback. Because it seems to me that the Rambam wants to identify tshuva mura as a situation where there could actually be other reasons you pull back. And therefore, to be chuvag mura has to be that the reason why you're doing it is for that reason. You could imagine that if, you know, if the sin being spoken about here is adultery, let's say, right? Then there might be a reason that you pull back, and that's because you don't want to get a divorce, or you don't want to be caught, or you don't want to be, you know, caught in a modern situation, even in situation, you don't, want to, you don't have to pay out your ketubah, right? And the Rambam would say, it's still good not to do it for that reason. That's still chuvab, but it's not chuvag mura unless the reason you're not extending yourself physically in that moment is because you decided not that you don't have the desire anymore, not that lust is gone, not that you're afraid of a financial penalty, not that you're afraid of public recrimination, but because you realized this is wrong. So I, 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 that's why I'm asking the question. I'm not sure why he's chosen this. I think you're right in the first part of what you said, which is that Listen, is there something we're not born with an with an instinct to steal? Maybe we're born with an instinct, like an anthropological instinct to 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 be on top, right? To be the, the top gorilla and therefore to have more. But we're not born with the instinct to take that which belongs to someone else. We are born, and I think the Rambam knew this and the ancients knew this, and um pretty much everyone who studies human psychology and anthropology knows this. We are born with the instinct to be intimate, to procreate, right? It's, it's the most primal instinct. You want to talk, you know, evolutionary biology to make sure that our, um, our, our DNA exists to the next generation. There's nothing more primal than that. And I wonder if the Rambam uses this as an example because he might say, this might be the hardest thing to do tshuva for, to do tshuva gumura, to actually overcome that prime instinct, not because you're about to get caught, but because you have, used your prefrontal cortex um, refined by your understanding of the tradition to say, I'm going to overpower my brainstem. Obviously he wouldn't use this word, these words, but I think it's the same idea and say, this is the wrong thing to do, even though I want maybe. Um, Tybal's hand was up and then Rebecca. Um, I had put my hand down because Denise said part of what I wanted to say about the, um, that this is, much more complicated in that, unlike stealing, I think that was her example, it's not that this is, it's just more complicated. But what I think I wanted to add after you said what you said, despite uh, being from Pittsburgh, I know Detroit is nothing like Pittsburgh. Um, (laughs) That, But this in some ways, if you take out the specificity, this has to do with, not just the idea of a continuum of as opposed to like um, a bimodal distribution where this is always good and this is always bad. This is a continuum. But more importantly, this has to do, I think, with something very Jewish about learning what not to do when that mm-hmm. that you have have to wait. I mean, there's um, that old study. Oh, I forget which school of psychology did it but looking at toddlers given treats and the toddlers that could not eat all of their treats at once but save them it boded well for their success as students in um, academic things and also in life and that's a piece of it that we need to learn as Jews that there are times times and seasons when what appears to be the same action is um, appropriate and good, and there are times that it isn't. Mm, great. Thank you for that, Tybal. And what you said before we get to Rebecca's comment triggers something about maybe why it's so significant for the Ramam to put in here Uvam Dina in that exact place. 
right? He's not saying that if you do tshuva in a different place, it's not a good thing, but maybe he's, he's laying out the highest form of tshuva. Like places trigger, they trigger negativity and they trigger positivity. They, they trigger desire. They trigger uh, nostalgic memory that awakens things. I will tell you, um, um, when I took my daughter to visit colleges a couple of years ago and we visited the campus that I was a student at in Columbia and your college campuses are venerable and they don't change that much, at least on the outside, right? I mean, the dorms change inside, but when you're walking on the campus, it looked like it was 1991. I didn't know who was the college freshman when I was doing it. And what came back to me in that place, which I had not stepped foot on in two decades was not just like, anodyne memories of having been there and the class I took, but feelings, including feelings I had for people, including feelings I had for people that I might've been dating at the time, right? Like they, they come back, right? So maybe the Rambam is saying that if it's not just that you're with that woman that you still have a desire for, but you're in the same hotel as it were, where it happened last time, or you're back on the college campus where you used to be with her, right? And, on, and, and you're over, able to overcome that. That's Gura. Um, Rebecca, your hands went down, but I would love to hear what you have to say unless you've chosen not to. I just, I just really wanted to say that I think it's the only example, really, where there's almost a certainty that it'll happen again. Mm. Meaning, you know, if, you know, from looking at, you know, politicians that do things that they're not supposed to do, but yeah. the opportunity, it's, it's rare that it's in one, ho- you know, that it's that one hotel. Yeah. So it's sort of the opposite. Yeah. Great. Now, I'm, for the next part, I'm, I'm actually really soliciting your feedback because I'm confused by this line in the Rambam, and maybe you can like me. The Rambam in his Hilchot does not, it's not written like a midrash, so he's not quoting verse all the time. But occasionally he does, and, it's, and people have done interesting meta-analysis as to why and when the Rambam in this, it's really an instruction manual, goes into the midrashic mode to give you the verse from the Tanakh or the rabbinic source that's, that is the uh, undergirding of his law, right? He's not, he's not teaching the, 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 the evolution of the concept in this treatise. He's, he's teaching you how to do it. But occasionally he quotes chapter verse. And, and the question is why? So I really want to ask you, what is his midrash here? Because he's now defined Chuvag Mura. And then he says, Hu Sheshlomo Amar. And this is what Solomon said, according to rabbinic um, tradition, Solomon, King Solomon is the author of Kohelet, the Ecclesiastes, whether he is or is not historically is not significant for this conversation. He quotes from the 12th chapter of Kohelet at the very end of the book, at the beginning of the very end of the book, Uzachor et Borecha, remember your creator, bimei bechurotecha, in the days of your youth. I studied the commentaries on this, tried to figure out what's going on here. I'm, I'm flummoxed personally. What do you think is the re- is reason why this proof text is brought to support what he just said as describing the definition of chuva gmura? I'm confused by it. Anyone have a thought? How does how does this verse uh, open that up, Rebecca? I'm not sure, but if he's specifically going to this example of an of intimacy, then. Um, it might become easier to have tshuva on this type of, of sin once you, you know, once you hit 60, 70, 80. But, um, and I'm making an assumption here, easier than when you are 18 or 22 or 28. So it just might be that it's specifically for this type of avira that it's, um, it's something that is harder to uh, control when you're younger. So it has to be done when you still have the car supposedly to, to commit the other way. I see. So so you're basically reading it as it's not hard to remember your, your creator when, when, when you're old and some of your desires have died down, but you must even remember your creator in your greatest, in your greatest virility and vitality. Interesting. Okay, I buy that. Any other possibilities as to why this verse from Ecclesiastes to support this definition of full tshuva. We can also leave it as a teku, as a, the, you know, we, ha- we haven't solved it, but we're still learning it. All right. If something comes to you, uh, uh, Larry, yes. So 
I'm, I'm reading ahead, so I'm reading the next lines. You're, um, you're, 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 you, learn, you need to learn how to be an obedient student, Larry. I mean, what, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing reading more than you're supposed to read? Go ahead. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, he's, he's, he's clear. He's clearly saying what you just, what you just, what you had just said, or maybe it's what Rebecca said, or somebody just said, um, which, I, which I also think isn't so true. It's, it's easier when you're, when you're older and you don't have this, this as strong an urge, or at least don't have the capability to act upon that, that urge. <clears throat> but he's saying it's important you recall this even when you're young. This is not something that you, this is not, not wisdom that you acquire with old age. This is wisdom that is important to recognize when you're young and capable of these misdeeds. Uh, before you respond to that, I will simply say on this, I think that um, the Rambam was wrong and that we see, and I'm not going to dwell, I'm not going to go very long on it. I think that we, we have <clears throat> this whole issue about why he chose this is pretty obvious to me, because as you said, it's, it is the the strongest of all the yetzer um, hara that we have that, that we have as human beings. Um, but it's pretty clear from our looking at what's happening in society is people who are not so young are also guilty of it. Yeah. So it is important for us to remember it even when we are not in our youth. Yeah. Great. I, I accept both of those interpretations, and you're right. Um, Larry, that it may be that the Rambam is using this verse not only to kind of support what he just wrote, but to l- set up what he's about to write. Um, before we get to that, j- just a little aside. I-, I hope this comes out the way I, I intended for it to come out. I-, I am not, I'm not surprised or even utter- that demoralized when I hear the next scandal of the public figure the political figure, even the religious figure who stumbles terribly um, when it comes to these sorts of sins, because I think it's the hardest thing that, that organized and moral society asks human beings to hold back from. Right. It doesn't mean that I, I don't, that that I don't um, valorize societies and Jewish societies expectations of people in marriage and uh, um, and beyond it just doesn't surprise me because anthropologically it's 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 actually impossible to imagine that society could control that urge writ large it just is so the the fact that we have a, um, a significantly high number of human beings in our midst who actually do do marriage with fidelity and who do hold back from the very types of of sins that the Rambam here is basically saying are the hardest ones to hold back from. I think that's a triumph of, of the modern, of the modern human being. Um, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't still hope and expect that from our partners and our, and our, and our, and our leaders. But um, I think sometimes our, our society of laws is a little too optimistic about what the human being is really made of. Right. Uh, and this is where um, anthropological reading helps soften some of the headlines that we are uh, exposed to because some, some of this sadly makes an enormous amount of sense. Uh, Michael, and then we'll go on. I think uh, uh, it's very interesting. He's uh, The Rambam is actually uh, saying here, I mean, because if you just look at this from the standpoint of not just this particular example, but every example, uh, he's sort of saying, you know, yeah, the, the Yetzirah might, I mean, the, because of wisdom or something, maybe you can control, th- uh, maybe you can rationalize how to operate more um, with more thoughtfulness uh, as you age and not so much impetuous behavior. But uh, uh, so it could be that he is in effect saying that even if you do this or what, for whatever uh, thing you're doing, even if you come to a conclusion and a- actually reach uh, a state of tshuva and old, a- and old age, it's, re- it's still really relevant. Absolutely. And he set out an ex- exceedingly high standard as a paradigm for the pinnacle of tshuva. And therefore, I think that sets him up for his next sentence where he, 
he doesn't doesn't soften it, but he says that there there are yet other levels of tshuva, right? You know that with tzedakah, that the Rambam has his eight levels of tzedakah. If you if you reach the seventh level of tzedakah, it's not that you haven't done tzedakah. You just you might have one level to go, but that but still hooray for you. So look what he says next. If the only reason why you did your tshuva here, why you chose not to do your action, is because you got old, older. Or the, the reason why you held back is because you were no longer either physically or geographically capable of doing that which you had wanted to do before. Even though it is not exalted, lofty, the highest form of tshuva, he's beautiful with words because he's comparing with they're different verbs, but they're, um, they're echoes of each other. Mi'ula means raised up and lofty. Mo'elet means uh, efficacious. It's still good tshuva. Uval tshuva, tshuvahu. You can call yourself a person of tshuva, even if there were some of the factors that he mentioned above as the uh, primary ways in which um, tshuva can be done, even if those are not present. Like, good on you. You can go to Yom Kippur with a sense of achievement. Okay? And I probably most of us, um, if we're going to do tshuva, to our individual highest level, it's going to be in this category because there are sometimes, thank God, um, extrinsic factors that keep us from doing the things that we ought not do. Okay. Some actually, you know, if you take in, you know, modern psychology and behavioral, um, uh, behavioral work into the fact, into the, into, into the factor, we would say that you should actually work not to put yourself in the situation that you have stumbled on before because that's going to help you do tshuva. Rambam says that will help you do tshuva, but there's a higher version of it. So we also have a concept in Judaism of don't put a stumbling block before the blind. Maybe don't go back to that hotel on your next conference with the person who you had a dalliance with last time. Maybe that's not a good thing to do. Maybe you shouldn't test yourself to see if you can get to the Rambamian level of tshuva because you probably won't. Maybe stay at a different hotel. Okay. Um, now we get to the one that I started reading before. Uh, we skipped one halacha to uh, the third halacha of chapter two. Kol Let's say you did that vidui words, velo gamar belibo. This is what triggered it for me last time. He introduced the, the root gimel memresh, a complete in the previous halacha or two halachot before, shuvag mura, and now he's playing with it. You didn't fully um, finish in your heart, meaning you didn't complete, you didn't, how did I translate it? You didn't confirm in your heart. La'azov, meaning you, you, you said the words, you said your achet. Oh, did you say your achet? You banged your chest. And as you banged your chest, you said, but I'm going to do it again. To what can that be compared? This image becomes a very powerful image in rabbinic um, verbiage from the Talmud. We're going to look at the Talmudic source in the space and before, uh, before uh, in a second. Through the Rambam to today, it's it's referred to all the time for people who like speak Jew. What are you con, uh, compared to? Litovel v'sheretz biado, a very powerful three word phrase. Even you know if you're an Israeli and you don't and you don't live a religious life, you know this phrase because it's entered into the lexicon. A tovel, one who immerses, immerses where in a mikvah. V'sheretz, what's a sheretz? A creepy crawly, one of the things that if you touch it makes you tame, makes you be in a state of ritual impurity such that you have to go to the mikvah, biado, and you're, and you're holding it in your hand. So you're in the mikvah up to your chin saying, look at me, I'm immersing and I'm becoming pure. And I'm also holding on to the very source of that impurity. That's what it's like to do a vidui, bang your chest when you know in your heart, tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to be back in that situation and I'm not going to have the power to hold back. Renee? So is it, it, to me, it seems like it's the difference between like davening just for the sake of davening and davening with intention. It's a little more severe than that. What is it? I'll give you the classic example, which, oh, only happens in our community, in every community, every single day. You, you finish the Amidah, you say the paragraph, God, please prevent my lips from speaking evil and gossip. You take your steps back. You finish your Amidah before everyone else has. 
and you spend the intervening moments between the end of the Amidah and whenever else is finished, gossiping to the person next to you about someone else in the room. That's <laughs> Tovel Vashar Biado, and it only happens every single day, right? <laughs> right? It, 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 it's, it's an immediate invalid, invalidation of the very pious act you just purported to do. Listen, guilty as charged. No one is perfect in this. That's why the Rambam is calling it out. This is um, a very you know, ubiquitous form of, you know, two-facedness, internal two-facedness, because you're, you're, you're going through the motions, maybe you're, and maybe we should be generous, you're, you're trying to go through the motions of what the tradition lays out for you as a way of becoming a more uh, beautiful person, and then, and and then you stumble on it again and again. So it's the slippery slope that, that, that Ramam talks about in Nisilat Yishirin. Yeah, Um, this is, you know, a, a, scoun- a scoundrel wearing a pious man's clothing. Um, and it's, it's a kind of a, a scathing image, right? Look at me. I'm in the mikvah. Look at me. I'm davening. Look at me. I'm shuckling. Look at me. I'm, uh, I'm saying all the words I need to say. Don't look at me as I, you know, as I skim off my taxes or as I speak poorly of someone immediately after my davening is over or I, um, you know, act act like a jerk to the attendant in the mikvah the moment after I emerge. Then why did you immerse? She'ein hatfila mo'elet lo, it's that same verb, the the um, immersion is only effective, efficacious, it has no value. Ad until you throw out, release that sheretz. And of course, he's speaking metaphorically. Until you get rid of the thing, of the toxicity, that you are using the mikvah to rid yourself from, till you actually get rid of it, it you, it's, 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 it's a perpetual retoxification of yourself. V'chein hu omer, and now he quotes from the book of Proverbs, u'modeh ve'ozev yirucham. The one who acknowledges modeh, who does a, a, um, a, a vidui, essentially, a, a confession of what they did wrong, ve'ozev, and also releases yirucham. This is a pu'al verb, will have mercy brought upon that person. Meaning, it's not just enough to do modeh, it's also, you have to do the ozev. So he finds a beautiful three-word phrase uh, from Proverbs to encapsulate this idea. Now he uh, finishes, this halacha was something that we um, actually read before, but I, I wanted to show it to you because I love the proof text he brings, and then we're going to look at the Talmudic text upon which the previous law was derived. You have to specify which sin that you are doing. And how do we know this? Shen as it says, uh, where in the scene of the golden calf, 32nd chapter Shmoet, Anachata Ha'am, behold God, the people have sinned. Ha'am uh, Hazed, this people have sinned. Chata Agdola, a very great sin. That's not enough to say that they sinned a great, very great sin. They made for themselves a golden God. It wasn't just enough for the confession to be public in front of God. Oh, we did something really, 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 really wrong. You have to name that you think you did wrong. Uh, particularly so that you're aware when you're about to do it again, because you just you just actually mentioned it in your video. Okay. Um, the thing that we'll end with is to do a, a close reading of a piece of, my, of the Talmud that the Rambam based this part of the previous halacha on. And I'm going back one section of the Talmud so you get, so you get a little bit of context, because it, it, it's sometimes hard to lift a, you know, a four-line phrase from Talmud um, without knowing why that section is there on that page, okay? Um, so we are on the 16th page of Masecha Tanit, the um, tractate of Talmud that primarily deals with calling public fasts when there is not sufficient rain. People may not know that, that the Masecha Tanit in the Talmud is not about Yom Kippur, it's not about that fast, it's not about uh, Tzom Gedalia, it's about whether or not droughts were severe enough that the rabbis would declare that praying isn't enough and tzedakah isn't enough. You have to do a public fast. That's how they would petition God. They believe they would petition God to bring rain. Okay, which brings back Frisco Kid images, if that's if that's a scene that you're familiar with. Okay, here's the Talmud. Uh, oh, so the Talmud here in this page is doing a very interesting thing, which is important in context. Um, and a lot of the a lot of the material that has to do with tshuva in the Talmud, not all of it, is a Masechet Tanid. They are using the citizens of Nineveh, who are the citizens in the story of the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah, as an example of how and how not to do tshuva. 
And believe it or not, there are places on this page where the rabbis are suspicious of over tshuva, right? The penitents doth protest too much and the dangers of over-promising, right? Of over-restraining. The rabbis are not in, um, impressed with ascetics. The rabbis have an interesting relationship with Nazir, with a Nazirite who pulls back from more than is required to be pulled back from. And they believe that that is often a... a a slippery slope into a, a worse transgression. So they are, in this section, um, highlighting kind of amazing tshuva that the Ninevehians eventually did um, after Jonah went through the town, but they're also not naming it as suspicious and possibly more than needed to be done. Okay, so we have a, a verse from the third chapter of Jonah. We'll read it on Yom Kippur afternoon. The Ashuvu ish midarko. Um, uh, they all, each person pulled back Yashuvu, Tshuva, from their evil ways, Umin Hechamas, and from the violence, Asher Bakapehem, that was in their hands. So the Talmud asks, Umay, what do we do with this phrase, Umin Hechamas, Asher Bakapehem? What, what violence that was in their hands? The rabbis want to know specifically what the image of the things that were in their hands um, refers to. This is also a famous passage. Amar Shmuel Shmuel said, "Afilu gazal marish uvenao vevira." Let's say you stole a beam from your neighbor's yard. You, know, you needed another piece of wood to finish your pavilion, a marish, and you built it into your building, right? Mikaakea kolbirakula. The Ninevehians were so focused on purely ethical behavior that if the if the theft was found out after your pavilion was built, what do you have to do? You have to um, break down the building that you built using the beam that you had stolen in order to umachzir marish levalav, in order to return the um, the beam that you had stolen to its owners. That's not rabbinic law. That's an overreach. Do you know what rabbinic law says you have to do in that situation? If I steal your beam to make my porch, and I finished making my porch, my contractor, contractor's finished, and it's all signed off, and then the neighbor says, hey, that beam right in the middle there, that's my beam. What does rabbinic law say have to do? Renee, are you raising your hand? You have to take down the whole thing. Rabbinic law says no. Rabbinic law says if you require that, society, um, that, that, that society will break down, no one will ever do it. It's too high a price to pay for, for stealing a beam. Table. Even um, if you know I, it's his, for sure. I, Even if you know it's his. I thought, but I'm. For me, it's too early in the day to remember which track date. That that's why I think the legal term is conversion. That anything that's stolen under Jewish law is in fact converted, particularly if it's something that by stealing there's some kind of Kenyan, it becomes the other person. So the thief is then liable to pay the cost. And the subsequent costs. Correct. Particularly if the thing that was stolen is now part of another thing, such that by asking the thief to break it down, you would be way over punishing them. Right. Now, by the way, this happens in modern civic law. You, you read all the time about, you know, a contractor up in the Beverly Hills who clearly knew that he was building against a permit and has found out. And they are told you act, you have to tear this down. You bear the brunt of it. Rabbinic law says no. So in this scene, in the Talmud, the rabbinic law is saying the Ninevehians are overdoing the tshuva that is upon them. It's not tshuva gmura. They're forcing an, an, um, an onerous and in, an, an inappropriate payment. What does the thief owe? The value of that beam. That, that, that beam didn't have any specific significance. That significance is something that the other person owned that they'd want to use in a future construction project. They can buy any other beam and, and put it in. Okay. So that's what this section of the Talmud is. There were hands that were up and then went down. Does anybody want to say anything? Okay. No, I was going to say what Tybalt said. Okay. Not, I didn't have the tractate background, but it just my instinct because of Mishpatim was like, you just pay him for it. Good. Okay. Then anyway, next, I have one quick question. So I remembered reading about it today in my Daf and It says if, if somebody is uh, admits to a crime and entails and, and a penalty like stealing – he doesn't pay double the payment. Only after he's convicted in a court does he pay a fine. So if he's convicted, if if it's if it's known that he stole that beam, 
and he and he, he the guy whose whose beam it was takes him to court and he's convicted, then he does have to somehow pay a fine for it. Sure, right? But he doesn't have to doesn't have to uh, tear down his house, right? And depending on the circumstances of the, of the thievery, it might be the thing that you stole plus a fifth. It might be double the value of the thing you stole. There are several different permutations, but what it doesn't require you to do according to standard rabbinic law is, is to return the actual item. If by returning the actual item, you're going to have Hefsed Merubah, an enormous loss of your own property, which is way more onerous than simply having to pay back the value plus a fine. Yeah. Bonnie. So you mentioned about the contractor and, um, up to code, but some of those would be safety. So you might have to redo something besides a fine. Yeah. That, that was my only correct. Cor- correct. I, I think sometimes, you know, it, it, it's in the name of safety and it's really in the name of, of really happens as a result of bureaucracy or, or, uh, or, um, you know, uh, oh. a city just having had enough with this particular landowner. And so they're going to make them pay for it this time. But yeah. Sometimes you have to break it down because it's, it's wiring or, Plumbing, you know, that really causes problems later. Correct. Anyway, I've, had, I've had that experience. Um, okay. Now let's read, read the section of the Talmud, which is the immediate next section, which is going to be familiar because it's basically what the Rambam restates in his halacha, but, he, but the Talmud says it in an interesting way as well. Amarav Adabar Ahava. Great name. Ada, the son of love. His father's name was, was love. Um, his father's name was love. Adam avera, a person who has in his hand meaning who's who, who who has committed a sin, umidvade, and says a confession, but does not um, return on it. So the Talmud uses the verb chozer. The Rambam had used the word shav because he the Rambam wants kind of every time he refers to tshuva as a verb to have it be the verb from which the word tshuva is built. The rabbis use the word chozer, it's the same idea, to turn your heart. Lamahu domeh, what is that person similar to? La adam shetofesh sheretz biado. The, the, um, it's shorthand here. To a person who's holding a sheretz, a creepy crawly in his hand, the Talmud doesn't say who's doing it while entering a mikvah, but that's clearly the context from what comes forward. Sha'afilu tovel, the cholme mot shebaolam. You could go, you could try to do a mikvah in the Pacific. And if that didn't work, you could do it in the Indian Ocean. If that didn't work, you could do it in the Atlantic Ocean. All of the waters of the world, remember that natural bodies of water are the original mikvah, right? So the, our, our mikvah oat are facsimiles of the original mikveh hamayin. The word mikveh appears in the first chapter of Breshit. God kind of um, pulling together all of the waters is a mikveh. You could go into all of the waters of the world. And if you're still holding that sheretz biado, lo altalo tefillah, your tefillah has not, the verb is alta has not um, risen up for you, meaning it has not been effective as long as you're still holding in your physical or theoretical hand the thing that drove you to the mikvah in the first place. But zirako miado, if you get rid of it, if you really get rid of it, kevan shetaval ba'arba'im se'ah, as long, even if you Dunk in the smallest amount of water that's a kosher mikvah, 40 se'ah. Arba'im se'ah is the smallest, and it's much smaller than a mikvah that you probably would have gone into. If you, you've ever been to the AJU mikvah, that's much, much bigger than it needs to be. It's lovely and it's beautiful, but a, a kosher mikvah can be much smaller. Even if you go in the smallest amount that a mikvah would be kosher for, miyad al immediately your, your immersion is effective and you are, you are detoxified. So I wanted to uh, end the teaching here, and we're, we're going to end in a minute, unless people have other, um, other comments or questions, to show you how the rabbis believed and Rambam codified that shuva is both really, really hard and really, really easy. It's really, really hard because there's a reason we do things that are wrong. We, we, we are, there, there's a reason we have urges or if there's a reason, it is just the case that we have urges that take us out of what our civilized society tell us are acceptable. And it's, it's much easier to say, I'm never going to do something again than to actually not do it again. But it's really, really easy in the sense that if you can make that shift in your heart, 
then the world opens up for you. And even if you um, go to the smallest mikvah in the world, as it were, as long as you've got written that, gotten rid of that sheretz, the Jewish society wants to make it as easy for you as possible to look in the mirror and say, I've done tshuva. So the, what I want to end with, and then well, um, let me hear Larry's comment and question, and then I'll give you one little charge. Larry? Yeah, it's probably a longer answer than, I, than, than you have time to give, but I'm just wondering, where does the role of purification, since we're talking about mikvah here, fit into the process of tshuva, of confession, tshuva, um, compensation. It seems to me that we don't really have, in terms of um, at least the annual tshuva we're doing, I know that the Rambam is taking it out of the annual, annual cycle, we don't really have any concept of purification any longer, except for the normal going to the mikvah. Uh, correct. The Rambam and the Talmud here are using the mikveh as an example, as an analogy, but not because there are sins for which the mikveh is a thing that you do to do tshuva, right? That you, 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 you go to the mikveh to go from tamay to tahor, not necessarily because you committed a sin, but because you were in contact with a corpse or because, um, um, if you're following the laws of Tarat and Mishpacha, because it's time to, to reunite with your spouse. So it's, 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 it's an example. You're right that there's nothing in normative Judaism that says that how, how do I do tshuva for this particular sin? I go to the mikvah. Now, I will say that I think the idea of going to the mikvah, um, um, after having gone through some tran- life transformative experience or just before Yantif could be a beautiful thing. Um, some of you know that I, I have a, group of biking uh, friends, mostly from the synagogue. And I hope this is not TMI, but um, we bike on Sunday mornings and the Sunday morning closest to Rosh Hashanah, we bike a little bit earlier so we can get to the beach um, when there's no one on it. Uh, and we lock up our bikes and we all go into the water and we use the Pacific as a mikvah. Um, and we're there together to make sure that, you know, uh, while one person is is immersing, someone else can hold their bathing suit as a work. You have to be just as you were born in the, in, in the water. We're not doing that because as, as part of tshuva, we're doing it to get ready for the season. And it's a beautiful thing. It, it is, I find it to be a beautiful ritual every year um, to kind of go back to the womb, as it were, and see if I can emerge from those waters with a certain commitment in hand for how I'm going to live this coming year. But it's not it's not halachically or functionally part of the tshuva process. It's part for me, for me of a spiritual way of getting ready for the holiday. So yes, it is not, um, there's nothing in the halachic system that requires conversion, uh, immersion in the mikvah as a part of tshuva for a sin that you did currently. Um, Taibo, your hand was up and then it's down. Um, Cause I didn't know there was time. Well, just, if there is just two in passing, one is that, um, when you were talking about the word, oh God, I have a little bit of aphasia and now I forgot the word. Um, the word for, we know they were the ancestors of our rabbis. The Pharisees. The, the, Thank the, you, Pharisees. Yeah. That I keep a file of all the anti-Semitic ways that Pharisee gets used in modern discourse novels and whatever. And unfortunately, like everything else, uh, probably more in England than here, there's more usage that that was one. But when you were talking about Pharisees, I didn't want to interrupt. But other since you just said about mikvah, I was um, just going to say where I am, there's a big conservative synagogue in the District of Columbia called Otis Israel. And they built a mikvah for conversion to make sure to so that conservative con- conversions weren't being hijacked by orthodox authorities in that time period and after that was built i was part of a rosh chodesh group and i went to ask the senior rabbi if we could use the mikvah for rosh chodesh and some of us were talking about going in together and that was too much for him to say it was okay and it's a very big mikvah too but um we did for many years have a rosh chodesh group where we would go in one by one and then study I love that. I, I think um, for another class, we can talk about the revivification of mikvah in the modern world outside of the ways in which it's used in a more traditional community. And I think it's a it's a beautiful resurrection, pun intended, because it's a resurrection of a of a of a of an ancient um, ritual, 
a ritual that was used in some ways to experience resurrection. Um, and we're, I, I wish the AJU mikvah were closer and more accessible. Um, that the mikvahot and pico are fine. They're a little too, um, they're a little too entwined with the Orthodox community for our community to really use it intentionally and often individuals can use it, but we, but we couldn't, you can't use it really the way that we would want to use it. But I, I would love, and you know, as I fantasize about what our community can contribute to the local Jewish community, Rabbi Chorney, for who thinks about these issues a lot, she and I have spoken a long time about a, a West Side um, community mikvah. And truth is, it wouldn't cost that much money. You need the space would cost more than the construction. A mikvah does not cost that much to build because it could be a beautiful thing. Um, you know, people who go to the mikvah after a course of chemotherapy, people go to a mikvah after. God forbid a mastectomy or having, you know, recovering from a divorce or uh, upon retirement. There's some communities that have their kids go to mikvah before B'nai Mitzvah, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's an ick factor with mikvah, but there ought not be, right? If you do it in a safe and respectable and private way, you know, or introduce, you know, new Jewish adults to the idea that this is one of the ways which we mark transitions. So there are a lot of things we could do with it if it were closer and we had a certain amount of, you know, authority control over it. So in that's a project for down the road. Uh, the charge I wanted to give to you is that um, the Rambam is laying out something aspirational, and it's good to be on an aspirational um, arc, right? Uh, uh, I, I often talk about the ge- geometric asymptote, right? The curve that's approaching the axis, but it's the function, the equation is such that it'll never actually reach the axis. There are a lot of things that are like that in our relationship with God, in our attempts to show love, in our attempts to be kind. It's not like we'll ever say, yes, we're there, but we're constantly approaching a certain aspirational goal. I think the same is true with Chuba. And I also think sometimes we have to get real with ourselves and say, the hell with aspiration, this year I'm going to do it. So my challenge to you, of your many sins, and I'm sure you have them and so do I, see if you can find one this season that you can efface on the level of chuvagmura, if not using all the specific uh, criteria that the Rambam discusses in terms of being in the same place with the same person, etc. But your version of chuvagmura for that one thing, that one foible that you pretty much promised yourself, you'll never do again. In the world of recovery, they say never talk about again. Say I'm I'm sober today. I'm clean today. That's that's good too. But sometimes we have to cut things out of our lives, right? And sometimes there are behaviors that are in an ethical or relational or interpersonal or spiritual realm are simply no longer defensible. If you can emerge from Yom Kippur with one of those off your ledger, I'd say that's been a pretty successful season. Uh, if we come back to this text next year, we'll see there's so much more here, uh, but I wanted to give you a window into it. Um, and uh, and resurrect the Rambam, uh, who's still informing our behaviors and our ways of thinking of Jews uh, more than 800 years after he died. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.